Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. Bloomington's Maple Heights neighborhood was the subject of a fight over urbanization and gentrification last week. The Maple Heights Neighborhood Association requested the Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission designate the neighborhood a historic district. City residents spoke both for and against the Historic Preservation Commission's approval of the historic designation. The proposal was then forwarded to the Bloomington Common Council last week. In reading the proposed ordinance, City Clerk Nicole Bolden explained the designation. A conservation district is, in general, less restrictive than a full historic district and requires only the review of proposals to demolish or move buildings or construct new principal or accessory buildings. At the end of three years after adoption of this ordinance, this conservation district will elevate into a full historic district unless within 180 and 60 days before that date, the majority of the property owners provide the commission with written objections to the elevation. The neighborhood lies north of Bloomington downtown between the Indiana Railroad tracks and 15th Street. At the center of the discussion over the historic designation is the issue of balancing sustainable development with history. The city's historic conservation program manager, Connor Hendrick, told the council that the neighborhood was once part of a 160-acre tract bought by James N. Blair in 1825. The area still contains houses that were built in the late 1800s and early 1900s. This is a family, a single family neighborhood. It represents an integral part of the Bloomington story and is a familiar visual feature of the city. A local conservation district designation will ensure that these houses are not dramatically altered or lost in the future and that the neighborhood will remain it's in its historic setting as a single-family residential area, thus securing the preservation of this architecture and its story for another century. The Bloomington City Council heard opposing views during their public comment period last Wednesday. Terry Usry, a Maple Heights property owner, said he supports making the area a historic conservation district. I really like the character of the neighborhood the way it is. Um, it's, a, it's a very nice mix of uh, affordable housing, working class people, students, uh, faculty, and so on. Uh, I just really fear that without this kind of protection, the neighborhood will change in uh, ways that will, will lose the historical nature and the character of the neighborhood, and um, it will become gentrified and uh, be a bunch of McMansions, which I don't want in my neighborhood. But fellow Bloomington resident Daniel Bingham was not in favor of the designation. Bingham told the council making single-family neighborhoods historic across the city limits affordable and sustainable housing. Maple Heights is absolutely, you know, ground zero for potential gentrification because of the trades district right there. 
But if you freeze the ability to add infill housing, freeze the ability to take some of these single-family homes and make them duplexes or quadplexes, then the affordability is going to drop out the bottom in that neighborhood because people who want to work and live close to the trades district are going to buy up the properties and they're going to sit in them. And they're going to be able to afford to renovate them within the bounds of the historic district code, and they're going to get more expensive that way. Bingham also said he couldn't support creating more historic districts in the face of climate change. He advocates for what he terms more sustainable urban design. Sustainable urban design is dense. It's walkable. It's, you know, we can definitely try to preserve um, some neighborhoods of single-family housing, but we need to be developing the urban core. We need to either be going up, down, up and downtown more than we are currently. Or if we want to preserve that, then we need to densify these core neighborhoods close to downtown so that more people can live in them within walking distance of downtown. Council President David Rollo voiced initial support for the designation, but passed on a straw poll. I think Mr. Bingham said we can't preserve everything, and that's cor correct. Uh, but we can preserve some things, and, and we have to be judicious about what we preserve. And I think that we need to concentrate on mixes of density downtown. We have to think about uh, mixes of income downtown and make sure that there's equity being reflected. And, um, and we have to do, use the tools we can to ensure that. Councilmember Susan Sandberg was among those council members who supported awarding Maple Heights a historical designation, in part because of Bloomington's lack of single-family housing. We need owner-occupied housing, we need single-family housing, we need the full array of housing that fits the needs of everybody who wants to live and work in this community. We know we have a housing shortage, but we're not going to get to where we want to go by destroying the homes that already exist that are small, efficient, and that the homeowners want to maintain uh, in, in a fashion that does not uh, blow it completely out of its livability. Councilmember Jim Sims said though he supports the designation, he expects the conversion around development will change. We want to, or I think it's, there's value in preserving some core neighborhoods. Um, there's some that we have to do because others are protected through other means. So I think in some cases we have to do that. But I think on the other side, we're severely limiting ourselves from a growth standpoint um, at some point. And, and so I, I, I will vote to do pass for this because I believe that we need to preserve that. But I think this conversation is going to evolve eventually where we're going to have to accommodate growth. We're going to have to accommodate infill. We're going to have to accommodate density. We're just, we're just going to have to. Maple Heights is now a historic district in the city of Bloomington. But city council may hear more arguments like Bingham's about sustainable urbanization and prioritizing green development. On January 11th, a new orca whale calf was born to a pod living in the waters between Seattle and British Columbia, Canada. The birth comes at a critical time for the whale pod known as the Southern Resident Orcas. Between June and September of 2018, the pod lost three whales, bringing the total population down to 74. Survival of the calf is not a certainty. The last baby to be born lived only half an hour. Its mother carried the body for a heartbreaking 17 days last summer, bringing international attention to the whale's plight. The southern resident orcas have not given birth to a surviving calf for three years. 
During his first day in office, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro transferred responsibility for indigenous lands to the Department of Agriculture, according to the New York Times. The move concerns environmentalists and indigenous communities in Brazil. These groups are concerned that the president will increase industrial access to the Amazon rainforest. There are close ties between agriculture and industry. The change is likely to result in an increase in deforestation and violence against indigenous people, according to a report in The Guardian. Deforestation is already on the rise in Brazil. Last year, the country saw its highest rate of logging in a decade. During the last eight years, the Brazilian government also reduced funding for indigenous groups and gave industries greater access to the rainforest, the New York Times reports. The Brazilian government has also slowed the pace at which it recognizes indigenous lands in recent years. And now for some good news. Kankakee Sands, a prairie restoration project near Morocco, Indiana, has 16 new bison calves. The calves were born last year and make a total of 58 bison living in the park. They are now experiencing their first winter. Despite the upcoming cold snap, the bison should be fine. Unlike most bovines, bison are designed for cold temperatures. They grow warm, woolly fur, which is thickest on their heads and the front side of their bodies. Because of this insulation, bison face into the wind to stay warm. This blows their fur down, trapping even more heat. In fact, bison can stay warm in temperatures as cold as 22 degrees below zero. Bison also have a strong sense of smell, letting them find vegetation under deep snow. Their metabolism slows down during winter, so they don't need to eat as much. Indiana is a natural habitat for the American bison, and herds once roamed freely. The term trace comes from the trails the bison traveled on their regular migrations. The most prominent overland path through the area was the Buffalo Trace, a cluster of trails running from the prairies of Illinois to salt licks in northern and central Kentucky. Created over time by bison herd migrations, these trails had become firmly packed and up to 20 feet wide. Natives, as well as early settlers, traveled via the Buffalo Trace because it offered relatively smooth passage over rugged terrain. The Buffalo Trace is still visible in Harrison County at the Buffalo Trace State Park. A federal appeals court in Richmond, Virginia, recently overturned a federal permit for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. The permit allowed construction across 21 miles of national forest in Virginia, including a crossing of the Appalachian Trail. The pipeline, commissioned by Duke Energy and Dominion Energy, was planned to move fracked gas from Pennsylvania and West Virginia to North Carolina. The appeals court struck down the permit because of inconsistent practice from the United States Forest Service. The service predicted the pipeline would be very harmful to endangered species nearby, but still accepted the permit. The suit against the permit was first brought by several environmental and historic site preservation groups. Because of the permit rejection, pipeline construction has been delayed for at least the next several months, and sensitive habitat is protected. A federal judge has ruled that the Trump administration acted illegally when it stripped the Yellowstone National Park grizzly bears of their Endangered Species Act protections in 2017. 
The Grizzlies' numbers grew from 137 in the 70s to over 700 in 2018. The court's decision reinstates federal protections for grizzlies in the Yellowstone region and stops plans for grizzly hunts in Wyoming and Idaho. The grizzlies in Yellowstone have started to recover under federal protections, but still face many threats, including climate change and isolation from other grizzlies. Many environmental groups and environmentalists have opposed the bears' premature delisting and state plans to allow them to be hunted for sport. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Up next, part two of WFHB's Norm Holy discussion with Purdue wildlife ecologist Dr. John Dunning on the impact of climate change on bird migration. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I am interviewing Dr. John Dunning. He is a professor of wildlife ecology in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources at Purdue University. Is there a mismatch between the migration and the emergence of insects for some of the smaller bird species? So this is another effect of climate change that's being studied really pretty well now uh, in a variety of places across North America and also in Europe. They're worried about the same thing. The, our migratory systems are set up so that birds passing through on the way to the breeding grounds hopefully can find enough food to give them energy for each step of migration. This is really well studied with a number of shorebird species that go to places like Delaware Bay and Chesapeake Bay and feed on the eggs of horseshoe crabs. And their spring migration is timed just so they hit the peak of that horseshoe crab egg laying and they get tons of food that way. We think the same thing happens with our migratory songbirds here. In this case, we're mostly worried about the long-distance migrants, the ones that are coming from South America or Central America or Mexico, as opposed to short-distance migrants that are maybe just coming from the southern United States. These long-distance migrants time their migration by using changes in day length. Actually, it's the length of the nighttime that kicks in their hormones to migrate. That's something that doesn't change, and over the centuries was a reliable cue as to when is the appropriate time to move north. As our winters have become milder and milder, and our springs have started earlier and earlier, then things like tree leaf out has started earlier and earlier. When that happens, timing the beginning of migration based on day length isn't as reliable a cue. Up here in the West Lafayette area, in the early days of May, what we notice is that when oak trees start to unfurl their leaves, when the buds break and those young leaves start out, that's when enormous numbers of insects try to feed on those leaves. The oaks don't put in all of the secondary chemical compounds that protect their leaves for the first couple of days. It takes them a while, and, and that makes those leaves vulnerable. When the birds are migrating through, they really hit those young oak leaves and, to feed on those insects 
they really target large numbers of insects that can be found at that time. The leaf out comes earlier and earlier than those vulnerable leaves and therefore the biggest insect populations are now occurring before the pulse of our long-distance migrants move through. And by the second week of May, when we typically have our big days to go out in one day and on a weekend and try to count as many birds as we can, the trees are already completely leafed out in, in many cases. And that means we see fewer migrants. It also means there's less food for the migrants. So there's a real worry that there's a disconnect between the timing of migration and the cues the birds are using and when the best pulse of food for them. Are they likely to adapt? We've been looking for evidence of that, and there's all sorts of creative ways that people have been looking for uh, whether the birds are changing their behaviors. So, for instance, there was a real interesting paper a couple of years ago where somebody went to the journals of Henry David Thoreau. He kept journals where he wrote down every day what flowers he saw blooming in the spring and the days that he saw the first yellow-rumped warbler of the spring or common yellowthoat in the spring. So he wrote a daily record going for a couple of decades, and we can now compare when we are seeing those species showing up. And that gives us a record not just going back a couple of decades, but a hundred years or more. Um, and that's the time frame that you need to be looking at to see whether the birds are, are changing their behavior. And the answer is some species are, but other species do not seem to be altering their migratory behavior as quickly. And so there seems to be some ability of the birds to evolve, but not all the species are take, taking advantage of the earlier pulse yet. Our state forests are converting from the oak beech to hickory maple. Do hickory maple provide the same number of insects that are provided by the oak? Oak and hickory is what is in the dominant canopy classes now, and beech and maple are the ones that are coming in. So uh, a little different combination than, than what you stated there. But most of our breeding and migratory species that we find here in Indiana don't cue in on a very specific tree species. Instead, they are attracted to an area because of the structure of the forest in an area. So whether it's 10 to 15-year-old forest as opposed to 40, 50-year-old forest is the major characteristics that birds are focusing in on. If we lose our oaks because of lack of regeneration, and that can be climate change related, it can also be land use related. Oaks often come in after big fires, and we haven't allowed big fires for a long time. If we lose the oaks, some species will be harmed a little bit, uh, some bird species, but it depends upon the structure of the forest that replaces the oaks more than the loss of the oak species itself. Is a young forest more productive in terms of insects and food for the migratory birds? Very young forests, what grows up after a fire or after a clear cut or after an agricultural field is allowed to go back to nature. Very young forests provide a different suite of resources than do older forests. A lot of that is related to vegetation density or the volume of leaves that are present in a given stand of forest. A really young forest just has a whole lot of shrubs and young trees that provide a large vegetation volume, and the amount of insects that are produced are related to the volume of leaves, the amount of fruit that is available, more important probably for fall migrants, is related to 
the kinds of species that you get in early successional forests. Those young forests have lots and lots of resources for migrant birds and also resources that birds use late in the breeding season. Older forests obviously have bigger trees, older trees, and they have more oh, trunks and branches that are suitable for building cavities in. So you're going to get more woodpeckers, more chickadees, more bluebirds with the older trees. So the different age forests provide different resources that are related to the structure of the forest. What are the long-term prospects for the birds that are breeding in Indiana, the effect of climate change on that? So you can go to the website for the U.S. Forest Service and if you type in atlas and birds or atlas and native trees, you can get to this set of maps. And what it shows for our birds is really dramatic changes for a wide variety of species, including many that we think of as being extremely common birds in our forest today. I did a quick and dirty review of the Forest Service database, and I found about 70% of the birds for which they had good data, because not all of the data sources for all species of birds can be modeled in this way, but of the bird species, breeding bird species here in Indiana, for which they had good data, about 70% of them were expected to decline, and about 30% were either going to stay stable or increase. So many more losers among our breeding birds than birds that will benefit from climate change. I've been speaking with Dr. John Deming. He is a professor of wildlife ecology at Purdue University. Thank you very much for your comments. looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now, it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. I am Juliana Daly, and today's In Nature segment is about the endangered osprey. The osprey is unique among North American raptors for its diet of live fish and ability to dive into water to catch them. Ospreys are common sights soaring over shorelines, patrolling waterways, and standing on their huge stick nests, white heads gleaming. These large, rangy hawks do well around humans and have rebounded in numbers following the ban on the pesticide DDT. They are very large, around the size of 21 to 22 inches. Their bodies are slender with long, narrow wings and long legs. Osprey are brown above and white below. Ospreys search for fish by flying on steady wing beats and bowed wings, or circling high in the sky. They often hover briefly before diving feet first to grab a fish. They lay one to four eggs one time a year, 
and the eggs are cream to pinkish cinnamon colored, wreathed and spotted with a reddish-brown color. Even though they are smaller than an eagle, they are often confused with eagles. There is a large population of ospreys living in southern Indiana, especially at Lake Patoka. You've been listening to In Nature. Coming up this week in our listening area, the Brown County State Park Winter Hike Series will continue on Saturday, January 19th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to begin the hike along a one-mile stretch on the park road. Then you will trek into the woods for an off-trail, rugged, and steep hike to Deserter's Cave. Dress for the weather and bring a hiking stick. A winter rock garden program will take place at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, January 19th, from 1 to 2.45 p.m. Meet at the Canyon Inn for a rugged stroll and to learn more about plants like mosses, lichens, ferns, bryophytes, and more. Walking sticks are recommended. A class on planning your spring garden is scheduled on Saturday, January 19th at the Endright Center. The center is located at 631 West Edgewood Drive in Ellettsville, and the class runs from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. The class will include information on what grows best in central Indiana, what plants require to be happy, how to start plants indoors, and types of gardens. Call the Enright Center to register at 812-876-3383, extension 515. A lunar eclipse hike will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 20th. It will begin with an informational session at 7 p.m. At 9.36 p.m., the eclipse will start. Learn more about the total eclipse at the Lakeview Activity Center before taking a one-hour hike along multiple, sometimes rugged, trails. A small amount of red light still illuminates the moon enough for us to see it. Instead of being bright and white, the moon will be very dim and red. Thus it is called a blood moon. Dress for the weather and bring a hiking stick. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Wes Martin, Linda Green, Norm Holy, Juliana Daly, and Andrew Brown. This week's In Nature was written by Juliana Daly and edited by Jan Walker. Andrew Brown, Kalyan Bauer, Jan Walker, and Wes Martin edited the script. Norm Holy produced our feature. Kirsten Payton edited our feature. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. Myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar, and Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. 
Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.